shooting the gun is an amazing experience. Uh, <laughs> it's just incredible. When we shoot a tactical burst, that's two seconds, uh, and that's 114 rounds that that go out of the front end of the <laughs> millimeter Gatling in that time. Now, uh, shooting it just nonstop is not something that that's recommended just uh, for air purposes and, and those kinds of things. I have gone out on missions and sorties where the intent has been do not come back with a bullet in the gun. All right, welcome back, Lake Tech Nation. This one's a pretty big deal. Uh, we got our first general officer on the podcast. We bagged our first general, we our did first it. star. Shoot for the stars. Sometimes you get a literal star. Drew, who are we talking to? Today we have Brigadier General Michael Drowley, a.k.a. Johnny Bravo. He is the Director of Joint Training and Exercise J7 at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command out in Hawaii. Uh, where he develops and executes the joint exercise and joint training programs for the Indo-PACOM headquarters, their components, subordinate forces within that area of responsibility. Uh, He also develops and implements concepts incorporated into the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Uh, For example, the Pacific Multi-Domain Training and Experimentation Capability. Uh, Essentially, he is just having a blast out in the islands. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from the United States Air Force Academy, which I know uh triggers those of you who went to west point especially alex <laughs> uh he's a command pilot more than 2400 flight hours in the a10 uh which again we talk about this in the episode if you're unfamiliar give it a google an absolute badass airframe uh including more than 200 combat hours uh, and, uh, and on that note i would direct anybody who is interested in learning more about our guest tonight he has a a ted talk where he talks about some of that experience he's it's on a fantastic ted talk he's on simon sinek's podcast talking about leadership and all that entails uh he has i have worked for him and he has been a friend of mine for a long time uh not only does he talk the talk in terms of humor performance he also literally walks the walk um i have been programming for him forever um an absolute ba uh, and we are thrilled to have him on it's a pretty cool episode he uh we crack into a little bit of like the secrets of how you lead at a level like that and we also talk about the challenges with trying to get organizations that are big and bureaucratic and have competing incentives and things like that to move in a direction where you care about and improve the performance of actual human beings, which is not always the easiest thing to do. And I think the other reason too, that we, we wanted to have them on in an interesting kind of conversation we have is, is just at the level of most embedded folks, you're experiencing sort of life on the ground in terms of working with troops. And and here we're able to unpack some of what it means to make decisions at levels far and away above that. Um, you know, kind of like at, at what point do people become numbers and how do you navigate that world? So again, I, I think one of, one of our more informative episodes and definitely one that, that you guys will enjoy. I don't know the rules around call signs. Are you allowed to tell us where Johnny Bravo came from? Yeah, there's always a um, different answer that you'll you'll get on that. If somebody's being coy with it or they don't want to talk about it, they'll be like, "Oh, got to be in the bar and you got to buy me a drink," you know, kind of thing. Um, some of them have like less than stellar reasons why you got the call sign, and so sometimes for those, you know, it's one they have a cover story for them. It's like, mm. hey, you know, like it means this, but then to the real audience, there's there's a, the actual story. Uh, yeah, mine's really non-controversial. Like I showed up to Korea in my first A-10 assignment to start flying. 
I, well, here's where I was kind of an idiot. No idea like where to get my haircut or any of those kinds of things. And so like I went like a month, month and a half without getting a haircut. And I finally got through my mission checkout, which means you're now a fully qualified combat mission ready A-10 pilot. So I'm going to be up to get my call sign. And it just so happened it was somebody's penny flight. And as all the squadron leadership was walking by, I popped off my helmet and like the hair was just like on fire. It was straight up. It was way out of limits, you know, kind of thing. And somebody was just like, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's the new A-10 pilot. And so when I got to the call sign ceremony, there was a bunch thrown around like Elvis. Uh, there was moose, like the moose product you threw in your hair and the Johnny Bravo cartoon. It just came out on Cartoon Network and somebody threw that out. And I they make you wait in the hallway while they deliberate on what your call sign is going to be. And all of a sudden I hear the room explode. And I was like, well, whatever it's going to be, that, that, that's it. And um, yeah. And so that, that's, that's how I ended up with it. And it's stuck ever since it's funny, like uh, even in my new office, you know, I'm dealing with other services and people meeting me for the first time and they hear Johnny Bravo's the call sign. And then uh, all of them are like, it makes total sense. I'm like, well, what part of it makes total sense? Cause I don't think I'm like, <laughs> I'm like the cartoon character or anything other than the fact that I had a really bad hair day one day, but uh, yeah, that's how, that's how it came to be. <laughs> Do you have, so I have to ask this because, I mean, I, I know who Johnny Bravo is, like Cartoon Network, but I don't think he's still around as much. Do younger people come in and have to, you got to explain who that is? Yeah, yeah. well, there's a weird, not a weird, but there's a generational gap in there somewhere where people don't. Like most of the younger, it's coming back in different TikToks or whatever. So yeah, he's a meme character it. now. Yeah, he's a meme he character really? now. Yeah. Good for him. Shout out Johnny Bravo. Yeah, what's really weird or, weird or interesting about it is on the Brady Bunch, and I don't even know which Brady was, Johnny Bravo was one of the kids' alter egos. And so, like, you get a real old demographic, and they think it's a Brady Bunch throwback. And I'm like, no, that's not the, that's not why I have <laughs> Jeez. I didn't yeah. know he was coming back on TikTok. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> All and right. He's not, yeah, he's a Seth MacFarlane character, too. So, like, any kind of family That makes guy. sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I gotta ask. I gotta throw this out there. This is my first geo question, mm -hmm. and this is something Alex and I have talked about a lot. Something we've talked about at work quite a bit. How do you? And I imagine you're very good at this, but how do you get an honest answer from people? Because from my perspective, well, I don't want to say my perspective, but there's there might be a tendency to be surrounded by yes men. How do you get honest answers? Yeah, that that is really tough. I, I would say what I've discovered is the, the further you move up the chain, if you want to call it that getting either honest feedback or un, like unvarnished feedback um, or an honest answer, it, it, it becomes really challenging because there's risk there. If somebody puts it all out and then all of a sudden that that's not received well uh, by whoever's getting the feedback or, or receiving the honest, the honest feedback, the honest question uh, and those kinds of things. I, I try and, well, I've come up with two techniques. One, I try and foster an environment where it's okay. Like I try and really say like, Hey, listen, I, I want the feedback. And I actually tell folks like, Hey, listen, if I don't get the honest feedback here, I'm probably going to be more hurt down the road that I didn't get it than the feelings you're going to save by not giving it to me up front. So that's a big component of it is saying like, Hey, this is a, this is a safe environment to, to provide that feedback, please let me know if, if I am messing this up or not communicating it correctly, like, like now's the opportunity for us to, to fix it or address it or, or any of those things. 
The other part of it too is I, I've got to be able to give honest feedback or ask the honest question as well. So if folks don't feel like I'm, I'm doing that, it makes them almost more reluctant to provide me with that, you know, cause it's like, Oh, you, you know, I'm not getting the same thing from him. And so I try and model the behavior by if there's something that happened, I'll, I'll call somebody in and go like, Hey, listen, there's no drama here. There's, there's no reason to freak out, but that didn't go so well. So let's figure out what we can do to improve upon it. And hopefully through enough reps of doing that, it creates that environment where you're able to, to get that feedback or um, somebody's able to, to ask the question. The other technique and kind of the last one I have is what I call my little sensor network that are out there. And that's having individuals I know that will give me honest feedback no matter what. And I really try and ensure that they know that they're, they, they have that ability to, to give that to me, that ticket to be able to, to provide that and foster it when I find those type of folks. And, and they're very, very valuable because they, they provide that. And one of the contracts that I give with the leadership teams that I work with is like, hey, listen, I, I've got some of those folks out there. I'm not circumventing you. I'm not going around you. I'm not going to take that and just go 90 right on anybody. But I, I use it as a, a data point, something that I can either adjust my leadership style or the strategy or whatever it is that I'm getting feedback on. And it helps. But part of my standard leadership skills to to people that are moving up the ranks is getting feedback or getting those honest questions are going to become tougher and tougher as, as you continue to, to climb. I'll ask a, a slightly adjusted version of that question. A phenomenon I've seen all the time with the army is that if, if senior leaders are coming, they're always going to see a slightly cleaned up version of whatever goes on at that level, mm-hmm. or, or they're going to see the version that the leadership of that echelon thinks they want to see rather than reality. Do you mm-hmm. ever like, do you try unannounced appearances? How do you cut through some of that? Because like part of your job is to show understand reality. Yeah, I. So yeah, I'm giving away some of my tools here, but I'll do it because it's for the it's for the greater good. Uh, so one of the things that I do as a senior leader is I, I have time, um, you know, on my calendar. And I don't have where that walk around time is, is going to occur. It, it freaks out subordinate commanders. Uh, in fact, like oh, their yeah. mobile network starts getting energized at that point of like, hey, where's, yep. he, going? where's he headed? Um, That's why you got to know the aides and the XOs and everything. Exactly. Like they, they start, he, he's left the office. Um, but I also try and tell the team like, hey, again, like if I walk in and it's not like a dog and pony show and completely cleaned up and squared away. I, I understand that, but it, it's a data point that I'm trying to use to, to assess is morale good um, or what's the state of the morale? Is the mission going all right? Are there things that I can help out with? Uh, now, having said that, if I, if I walk into you know, a unit or an organization and the chain of command board is like three generations old and the award board has not been updated in forever. It's just got little, you know, picture to be announced later type of stickers up there. Like that is also a data point that I'll use for feedback. And that, that is the value of being able to walk around in that. I think the the trick is, is to use that, that feedback or that perspective that you get in, in a good manner and just not, you know, cause an implosion unless an implosion is really, really, really called for. I would say the other way that that's accomplished uh, is just really immersing myself in the mission um, and whatever the different mission facets are that are out there, even though it may not be my primary mission. So um, as a you know Air Force A-10 pilot by background, I get a lot of mission exposure through maintenance and operations, but going up and, and being in the control tower for a period of time and just hanging out and asking questions like, hey, how do you do your job? How does this work? And, and that's where you get a lot of feedback as well. But 
I would say the the Lincoln model of walk around leadership and just in going places and 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 picking up the the vibe helps out tremendously as far as assessing what the state of affairs are and and what you can do to get to help that out. You ever thrown on some fake glasses and a mustache? No, I've never done the you know the the show. undercover boss. Yeah, yeah, undercover. <laughs> undercover. Oh my boss. god, there's no way that's him. I couldn't guess. What what does happen occasionally though is I will be doing you know something in the you know in APs in the food court and I'll start talking to somebody and somebody doesn't realize who you are and that's where <laughs> that's where you get some feedback too. I was uh, launching out on an A10 sortie you know brand new to to a base and uh, the crew chief who's arming up my aircraft plugs in he's like hey did you hear we have a new wing commander and I'm like oh I had, yeah I had what do you think of him you know? oh no <laughs> uh, I quickly you know hey hey I'm the new wing commander uh, but uh, yeah. So every once in a while you will run into somebody who's not quite sure who you are and you get feedback that way too. But it's, it's again, one of those things you got to try and find it in multiple different places because it becomes a little bit challenging. And I think that's, especially today, uh, you know, do you follow blogs and social media outlets to see what's going on there? Do you, do you do the walk around leadership? How much do you get from your own command team? And I really believe it's got to be a composite picture. You can't just go to school off of one one single metric, uh, because that that's probably going to lead you to a place that you don't want to go. It's it's really got to be a comprehensive scan uh, to make your assessment of how you're doing or what you can improve on or uh, how the team is doing. So I guess on a similar note, and you've I think you've touched on this a couple of in a couple of different ways, but to ask it directly, just this idea and this I asked this question because I think down the road we'll get into this from a human performance and kind of data standpoint, but separating signal from noise. Tips, tricks, go. Yeah, so it, that's a that's a really tough one, and I hate to sound, you know, touchy feely about it, but it, it really does come down to a gut check when it comes to the leadership, the personal dynamics, culture. There is quite a bit of noise out there, and it's the ability to to say, okay, is this a consistent level of noise that then becomes a signal? Is this something that's got some solidity to it that I can action off of? Um, or, or is it just some momentary noise or some of the momentary fog that we got to see through as we continue on our, our, on our path? And again, I think the ability, what I call that composite scan, trying to take in information from multiple different sources, uh, different venues, uh, different areas of feedback gives you multiple angles to look at something where you, it now noise becomes signal or within the noise, you find the signal. Uh, to be able to action off of. And so that's why I'm very careful of taking one thing and going like, I got the truth data right here. Like it, it, it takes, I would say multiple reps and multiple things. And I'm also very careful. Well, th- that's the flip side of it too. I'm also very careful of trying to rely totally on that because a lot of times when you got that feeling in your gut, something in the pit of your stomach, there's something there. Like there's something like, hey, I need to dig into this a little bit more. Something's not quite right. Or, hey, we're on the right path here. Like we need to stay the course and start working through some of this because this is the right direction to go. Mm-hmm. So to to bring this around a little bit, because we are going to end up talking about like fitness and human performance mm-hmm. a little bit here. We're going to talk uh, about A10s. We're gonna yeah, talk I mean, about we, we'll do that too, especially <laughs> from an army background here. But <laughs> the the Air Force is big on the, the human weapon system terminology mm-hmm. stuff. And it's a very machine driven force, right? It's all about getting airframes to operate and perform their mission and things like that. How do you keep the human element in that human weapon system thing? How do you take care of like the actual people that make the whole thing work? 
Yeah. So I, I really think that's the part that we're, we're starting to embrace and, and starting to figure out uh, right now, because uh, when it comes to the machine, when you talk about our aircraft or our fighter aircraft or or heavy aircraft, helicopters, and those kinds of things, we have an immense amount of data uh, and metrics that goes along with that. And, and the intent is to try and do predictive maintenance as we go along. So as you are utilizing a piece of equipment, is are you utilizing it to fly to fail? So like you will run that until the point where it breaks intentionally. So that way you can swap it out and keep the supply chain healthy. Is it one of those things where you just want to know where that failure usually will occur? And so as you come up on a number of flight hours, you can say, hey, it's about time for this part to be due. So let's get the supply chain uh, energized and, and move from, from that standpoint. What we, I think we finally realized and are now trying to build it within the culture is how does the human, it, which is the most critical weapon system there is, no matter what career field you're looking at, how do we ensure that preventive maintenance, that optimization occurs there? With our Air Force Special Warfare members, uh, it really started with that. It then started to translate over to a lot of our air crew. As a commander, looking at our security forces and our main maintenance personnel, it, it really should be something that's there for everybody. We're trying to prioritize how we, how we move through that. But it, it's really the capacity of how do we ensure that those personnel are ready to, to do their mission. And when you, when you look, I'll use, again, the fighter background as an example, because that's, that's one that I grew up with. That, that's an extremely taxing regime that you operate in. You talk about G-forces, the amount of equipment that you have to wear, the duration of the sorties, uh, just even the simple ergonomics of sitting in an ejection seat loaded up with the gear and hunching over to look up through the heads-up display. N none of that is, is natural. And, and so trying to build a program that allows you to be resilient uh, and able to perform at the high, highest capacity is is really what we're looking for now and, and, and trying to build that in from a session all the way through an individual's, individual's career. And again, what's good is we have a foundation of that data, of those metrics from how we maintain a lot of our weaponry and our aircraft. And now we're trying to, now we're trying to apply it to the human system. Have you, so for context, one of the things we've talked about a couple of times on this, this podcast and with different folks in this space is I don't want to call it the rise of the individual because that sounds like a James Cameron movie, but just this idea that you have to start accounting for a lot more things, subjective or otherwise, as it pertains to performance. And so from where you sit, and you mentioned a lot of this, you know, talking about airframes and, and red, yellow, green systems and go, no goes. Mm -hmm. Have you seen at your level a, a, a an uprising of information, data, what have you, that starts to account for that? individual and then follow on question for that is then how do you react to that because from what i've seen a lot of that does not necessarily translate well to a traditional briefing environment it, most folks want black and white answers and what we're seeing is that this is a very gray space yeah it, i would say it's still pretty nascent or pretty young as far as how we're utilizing it and our understanding of it but i mean to highlight what I'll call some of the evolution of it as a young aviator fighter pilot uh, growing up uh, for one example a, a common cliche was that hey a, a tired mind's a tactical mind you know and you have pilot rest and the amount of sleep that you're supposed to get and that's that's a little bit of your sanctuary but it's also kind of understood hey if uh, you didn't quite get that 
are you okay to fly or not? It's, it's really your, your gut check to, to pass out to that. Now, if, if you that pilot rest area was broken for any reason, it, it makes it pretty clean of like, Hey, I'm not able to fly today or execute the mission. Uh, but now when you look at it, where you've got either biometric feedback, you know, via whoop, a Garmin or a roar ring, or, or, you know, those, those type of devices, not only do you just have the quantitative measure of the amount of sleep or the amount of rest that you got, but you can really get some feedback and go, I wasn't quite feeling up to snuff today. Now that I've seen the data, it, it's really reinforcing the fact that I'm not. And should I be going out and trying to pull nine G's with the condition that I'm in? And now that's taken to the flight brief and you can assess the risk management and say, Hey, I am in this category based off of these factors, uh, not enough sleep. This is my third sortie in a row. It's over hundred degrees out. And so you can see a lot of those metrics when we've looked back and say where either accidents occurred or near misses or close calls occurred and how can we assess those metrics and then apply them and, and how we, and how we move forward. Uh, and so I, I think that is one example of how to use that. Now, I would say, as we continue to evolve, how do we continue to look at critical aspects and go, we don't want just risk mitigation, we want full optimization. Like we want you totally peaked, ready at the top of your game, uh, via breath control, breathing, um, you know, clearing out the data bank. So that may, you know, you're in the zone, you're in a flow state, uh, all those kinds of things. And I would say that that's the next level that we want to get to. So that way we're not just glove saving, but we're actually knocking balls out of the park. So you, you mentioned something in there a couple of times that I'm curious about. This is pure curiosity. I know nothing of it. Drew might from having worked in the air force environment, but how to fly. I don't know how to fly. I mean, <laughs> there's that, but right. Is you talk about like tolerance for G forces and like the, the aspects of fitness that are necessary in the cockpit. I'm going to ask about the rest of the air force in a second, but just mm -hmm. for the sake of understanding it. What components of physical fitness translate to being able to perform effectively in the cockpit? How do you train for something like that? What influences that? The most basic is, is the squat. And so to stay conscious when you're pulling that number of G-forces requires a strain of your leg muscles, uh, your glutes, all the way up to your core, because that's what's happening to you when you, when you pull Gs. And so as an example, uh, you know, I weigh close to 200 pounds. If I'm pulling two Gs, I'm now 400 pounds. If I'm pulling nine Gs, I'm close to 800 pounds. Uh, but it's all going through the vertical axis of my body. And so those G forces are, are taking the blood from my brain and from, from my, my head and then pulling it down into my legs. And so what we have is a G suit, which is squeezing those extremities, trying to push the blood flow back up. So that way you can, you can stay conscious. So that, that's the basic maneuver, but then also what goes along with that is you've got to have good aerobic capacity because you have to have a breath exchange in there to continue breathing, to stay conscious, because you gotta, you gotta breathe, but you can't do it in such a manner that it reduces the pressure that's keeping the blood uh, up, up towards your brain. And so it's gotta be a very quick breath exchange and that, that, tires, that tires you out. And so uh, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Um, if you fly on a consistent basis, your, your body actually becomes acclimated to that. When it feels the G's, it fights against it. It, puts, it pushes against the G-suit. You know, you kind of anticipate those G's coming on. And so you, you start your strain before, because one of the most, or two of the most dangerous things that can occur is either sudden rapid onset of, of the G-forces. So it catches you unaware, and then the blood quickly pulls down to your legs, or a push-pull where... The blood goes up to your brain momentarily and then by a negative G and then quickly collapses back down to the legs again, because you're not 
what we call on top on top of the G's. You're pulling, you're pushing early against them. And so that's just one aspect of staying conscious. Now, if you're in a fighting environment where you're taking on uh, you know, adversary aircraft, now you're trying to do all that while you're coming up with a strategy to defeat whatever that aggressor is. Uh, you're looking over your shoulder to try and figure out where they are, uh, which puts a lot of forces on your neck and your back. So you're straining, you're turning, you're trying to communicate while that's going on. And again, it's not just you in the cockpit. Uh, you're usually wearing about 40 pounds of survival gear on, on top of that, which again is all situated in places which is not really conducive to that movement. And so those are all the, the conditions that you're, you're operating under. Then there's other factors that influence, are you well hydrated? You know, most of the time when you're, you're fighting, it's in areas that are in pretty um, extreme climatology, either over in the desert or tropical environment, got a lot of uh, sweat and perspiration going. Uh, again, there's how well you're rested, uh, are you fueled up uh, for the sortie? Uh, and so those are all additional factors that go into your ability to, to operate in that type of environment. And that, and that's, that's the fighter platform right there. So how accurate so is Top Gun? <laughs> so Top Gun 2 does a really uh, good job of displaying what those G-forces feel like, the, the pilots trying to strain against them. I don't know the realism, you know, the fact that they have to pull a 10G maneuver consistently in training and how happy maintenance would be. Uh, Can you go that? inverted with a MIG? at the at the range that they talk about that would be a pretty challenging uh borderline near dangerous maneuver <laughs> so, i wanted to ask that uh, question for so long yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were inverted yeah <laughs> that, that's pretty tough to do yeah uh, 10 meters yeah 500 feet now you're you're probably yeah that happens <laughs> so my follow-up to the fitness question is Obviously, at this point in your career, you're leading a lot of people who aren't necessarily pilots. So the fitness requirements of jobs get a lot more diverse. Mm -hmm. Is how deliberate are you about setting like the fitness culture of an organization? How do you think the Air Force does with fitness culture issues? Where do you see that going? Right. So that was really the space I was in when I was the Davis Monthan Wing Commander. Uh, so that was approximately four and a half years ago and stepping into that role. And so for me, I would say there's there's a few different priorities where that fitness is concerned. One is just a leader, like a leader. Uh, I want to give you back better than I got you. So that means from a leadership development standpoint, a personal development standpoint, and also a, a health and fitness optimization. You know, I want you to leave, transition on to your next assignment, healthier, you know, functioning, all those kinds of things. I don't want, I don't want you broken down. And so there's just a basic leadership care for your people standpoint. We're embracing those programs, trying to help progress those programs uh, helps out there. Uh, and again, that's, that's regardless of specialty code or job description of, of what it is you're doing. Uh, the other part though, as a commander is we're in the profession of arms. And it really, again, I've seen plenty of different jobs in specialty codes end up in situations that are in extremist crisis conflict where that level of performance saves lives or saves your own life. Um, and so because we're in the profession of arms, I, I have a belief that the more fit, strong, uh, high aerobic capacity, optimized that, that you can be, that that helps. And so, again, trying to progress these programs and, and having them available for our team or embracing the culture uh, helps out. You know, and then uh, on, the, on the personal side as a leader, it's it's trying to model what it is that you want others to embrace. And so, you know, as from a personal standpoint, 
there's a personal embrace of it because you want the team to be able to, to look up and go like, okay, he's found time to work out. Like, do I have the time or, you know, is it being accounted for in my schedule? And then we talked about touch points and trying to um, connect with the team. That was a little bit of the model that I've also used is um, I'm not a consistent, always early morning worker router. Uh, you know, I try and get a couple early morning sessions in a couple lunch sessions in and a couple evening sessions in, cause I see different people and I can high five them, make sure they're doing okay. See how it's going, uh, you know, and then they can see me, they can hit me up with questions and, and those kinds of things. So I, I think it's all integrated. It, it is tough though. It's tough to find the resources. It's tough to find the time. It's tough to prioritize that. And that, that really comes to that leadership's role and responsibility is, is how do you help work that into your organization and, and account for it? I do notice a, a significant number of greens on his uh, training calendar, which I'm always very impressed mm-hmm. by because I assume you're quite busy and I anticipate more reds, but you knock them out. <laughs> I do wonder a lot how we do it communicating. You said in there that like, regardless of what you do, you you tend to do it better if you're fit and on your game and stuff like that. And that's something that's extremely clear in the research, right? Like kids who mm-hmm. exercise do better in class, adults who exercise, like re- have better reaction time, have better emotional state, have better outcomes with mental health and all these things. And yet I constantly hear when I talk to people that like any time you put into fitness is a trade-off against your like technical proficiency with your job or right. something like that. And it's just not the case. It's not a zero sum game. Yeah. I, and I think that that is the transition that we're trying to make or the evolution of it. I mean, I remember being a young captain, I was part of an organization and one of the leadership roles was given a talk and he said, Hey, I authorize everybody to work out for an hour, hour and a half every day. And I'm like, but when, like, when am I supposed to do that? I've got kids and I'm, I'm busy and um, it, it's challenging to do unless you really press upon it. Like, Hey, this is for the good of our unit. This is for the good of you. This is for all those kinds of things. And, or you're able to give, some sort of guidance of this is where it falls in the priorities and, and this is how we, we measure it, or we continue to communicate that this is, this is something that we want from the team. I think like we've talked about from the standpoint of the betterment aspect of it, it does help with your ability to, to think, to operate under stress, to be as efficient and effective as possible. And so because of all those upsides, again, it, to me, that, that is a reason why we want to continue to find ways to to have this built into our culture of this is this is a, an overall good for for everyone. So this is more of like a curious sidebar, but has has fitness been kind of a mainstay in the pilot community traditionally, or has there been a difficulty translating, you know, like you mentioned, squat, pinch, deadlift, whatever, into being in the cockpit historically? Um. I would, well, yes and no. I would say it is interesting, even though it is a fairly demanding environment. Um, again, culturally, some of the old cliches or, or jokes were like, hey, the fighter pilot breakfast is a, a Coke and a Snickers bar <laughs> and, and you get after it. And so you have pure willpower, you, you get the job done. I don't think there until recently um, there has been a an embrace of, hey, if you really work to optimize these kind of things. One, it gives you longevity. Two, it it actually increases the performance. Three, like I said, if you find yourself in some some extremist or some sort of contingency or something along those lines, you're you're that much more 
uh, prepared for it. Unfortunately, again, I think what we've seen in the fighter community is um, individuals will fly in that demanding environment for 15, 19, 20 years. And you get to the point where your neck, your neck, your back can't, can't take it anymore. And a lot of individuals will say, okay, that that's about time for me to, to transition. You know, and that's the last thing you want to see. You don't want to see it, it get to that point where that that's the driving factor. Uh, you know, you, you want them to, to be in a place. It is demanding, but you want them properly suited up and prepared and, and given the tools to be able to operate in that environment and then be able to, to transition without those types of issues. Based off of a lot of the human performance feedback that we're getting and, and what we're trying to embrace, that's why a lot of these programs, I think now are catching the momentum that they are catching to help, to help the team be able to handle those types of things. Do you guys, again, another curious sidebar, do you guys crosstalk at all with formula one? Because to me, that was always kind of the one, a great excuse to go to Monaco, but then like two, a great population of really established physiology and, and training philosophy that I would think would carry over well to the fighter community. Yeah, I, I know there, ha I can't say with certainty the specificity of where those crosstalks are. I mean, I do know that we've looked at not Formula One, but NASCAR and other high performance uh, type areas to see what it is they do and, and different systems that they have. I, I do know that there is a good amount of research doing on what type of improvements we can be made and, and where that comes from. But again, uh, even though there are demanding environments out there, you know, finding one that's as challenging as the cockpit of one of our advanced fighters, that, that's tough. Like that, that's just by itself a, a demanding place to be. But yeah, I do know that there's no shortage of folks going out there trying to find better ways to try and be able to work more effectively in those environments. So we, we talked to the physical fitness one and, and Drew kind of alluded to like parallels within the physical performance world. What, so like to frame this one, fitness, isn't just like squat bench, deadlift, two mile run, all that stuff. There's, there's a lot more to being a fit, healthy individual. What do you see as priority components of kind of a more holistic wellness approach to airman human performance? Yeah, I, I, I do think it's that composite of some, some facets of anaerobic strength, the, the flexibility, mobility. So that way you're not, you're not blowing something out as you're trying to go through whatever the physically demanding event that there is aerobic capacity as you're able to do those functional movements, uh, over time. Uh, I, I would say probably the two challenging components that, that we're running up against and, and there's some progress being made in both of these, but I would say the, the ones that are the most challenging for the team right now, uh, diet and the air force has got a food 2.0, you know, program that they're trying to continue to, to get after that. And then for, I would say, even for me personally, sleep is probably one of the most challenging as far as quality sleep and, and being able to really take advantage of that, especially when you look at the battle rhythm, 24 seven ops, night flying, you know, deployed environments that, that aren't conducive to that. That that's probably to me, one of the most challenging areas that we're still trying to work on. So um, those are the major, uh, to me, those are the major components, you know, and, and we're as, as a team, we've got to try and to continue to figure out how do we, how do we maximize those? I got to ask you this question, like, and I could see Alex's face when you mentioned nutrition, because this was something I wanted to walk into your office at Davis Monthan and ask you this directly, because as an installation commander, 
And one of my, uh, we'll call it my personal vendetta against the DOD. Mm-hmm. Nutrition, huge priority. Everyone knows it's important. Military installations, Burger King, fast food. Can you explain this to me? Uh, well, it's a tough one to explain. Um, <laughs> I let me start laughing and looking at the ceiling as I'm asking, like, oh god. Yeah. No, I, I mean it, it is challenging. It's uh, you know I would say previously there there was not a whole lot of thought given to it, and you know the 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 food menus that were provided were more for efficiency than anything else. Like it's fast food or something that you could get relatively quickly on a break <laughs> if you need some food, and and there was relatively few options, you know, you had your dining facility and then you had some of those fast food options that were, that were available to you. Uh, but I would say, again, I mentioned the food 2.0 program. That is where they are trying to provide healthier options. I know Davis Monthan, when I was the wing commander there, that was an initiative of how can we give more choices with healthier choices and allow airmen based off of the means that they have the ability to go to all those places where it's not challenging just to say, hey, within my budget and the time that I have available to me, it, it leads to a fast food option. That is whether it's via the dining facilities, um, some of the other food options that are available on base, the, what, what they're trying to move toward is to, provide, is to provide that. Yeah, I think if we could go back in time and start you know, from, from the basics and then move on forward, it would be like start with the healthy options and then you know, that becomes a a tree to fat, you know, just a, Hey, I got to do it right now for time's sake, or, you know, those kinds of things. But, um, you know, the way that it evolved, it was really, Hey, there's a quick option. And then there's your dining facility option. I would say it's encouraging today that, that we're looking at programs that provide more than that, you know, and then hopefully the next step after that is where you really get that personalized approach, much like you do with the workout program or something along those lines saying like, Hey, based off of what it is you do and where you're going, here's how you properly fuel for the day, you know, and, and here's the options that are available to you. So kind of, kind of on that same line of thinking, because we've touched on this, like fitness is a priority for you. I know that personally is the one who tells you what to do, but also as a leader, it's a big priority for you. So from where you sit, what is kind of your biggest hurdle in getting that that message out to your, your folks? Is it the system fighting against it? Is it sort of just society in general, what we're dealing with? Like what, it, what like grinds your gears when it comes to getting folks to buy into that? Well, I, I would say there's, well, there's a few different challenges. You know, the initial one on the accession, the, the force that we're getting in today, the, the, the talent pool that makes its way into the military is not as fit as, as it used to be. So that, that's a challenge for the recruitment process and, and who joins the military and whether they meet the physical standards uh, to start from. I know the Army is working on a, a program to try and almost provide prep prior to the accession to, to get them to standards to, to, to help out with that. I think the Air Force is starting to look at similar programs uh, as well, because that's just the state of affairs of, uh, of, of what that demographic looks like um, today. You know, once you get in, it becomes the question of how much experience, how much fitness, dietary, good, healthy habit experience do those individuals have? How can we, how can we train them up? I mean, some of the challenges I would say as a member is now fully into the armed forces and now doing their job uh, is twofold. Uh, One, we talked about earlier, it's tough to convey the prioritization when you look at somebody's job jar and all the things that they have to do. Like I can stand up and say, Hey, it's a priority, 
But when you say it's a priority, that means that choice is involved. So what, what is being deprioritized to allow that to be a priority? You're telling somebody, I want you to do this, which means you also need to tell them, I don't want you doing this other thing. And that, that's challenging when you look at the expanse of, of work it is that, that we do in any, any given day. Like it's a very busy, demanding job for good reason. We, we're all type A personalities and we're all trying to do a good job. And it's, it's a challenge to say, I want you to do this other thing because the common tendency, at least I know it was for me, would be to say, okay, I need to squeeze that in and not knock something off to, to account for it. And that is a leadership challenge to be able to say, I want you to prioritize this and I need all the other leaders to go out there and account for you know, what is not going to get done or what doesn't get done to the extent it usually gets done to, to account for that. Uh, the other thing is uh, the resources are tough for it. it. I mean, it's a pretty resource constrained environment right now. Uh, the services are going through modernization and, and personnel programs and, and those kinds of things. And trying to find the money to be able to do it right is, is not the easiest thing as well. And so that that's the other leadership aspect in trying to account for the resources and ensure that it's fully resourced the way that it's supposed to be. That That's just a challenge. And you know, I know a lot of good leaders and commanders are out there that that is what they they work on and what they advocate for. But that, that's just the, the nature of what we're in right now and, and, and what you're up against when you when you're trying to provide this for the team. So when we when we talk about resource constrained environments, when we talk about accomplishing the mission, regardless of what's out there, all those kinds of things, it always comes back to the same buzzword. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you from your perspective, what readiness actually means for the organizations you lead. Yeah, it, it, well, I'll start with the gut feeling first. And um, I use this uh, example when I'm in my leadership roles is if the flag goes up for whatever that next crisis, whatever that next conflict is, and that airman, that soldier, that rifleman looks at themselves in the mirror and says, I'm not ready for this, like that's that's the ultimate test. You know, if they just go, I am not, I am not prepared for this. Some of it goes like, do they have the right equipment? Are they packed up? Is their training adequate? From an optimization or health standpoint, uh, to me, it's really having an understanding that they're going to go into a demanding environment and they know that they've got the capacity to, to take on the tasks that it is that they're going to have to do. So a lot of that goes to the old, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war analogy. Uh, are you doing exercises? Are you doing workups? Uh, whatever that is where you can make an assessment of your individuals like, Hey, we did that, but man, we were smoked or like, yeah, they, they took that right in stride and didn't phase them. We can up the, up the intensity. And that's how you get a lot of that, that feedback. So it's a tough one because it's more qualitative than quantitative, I think on your assessment of how the team is doing, but it does have to be a qualitative assessment of when it comes time to show up to some austere location and we're building out a base or, you know, some, some Ford operating area, building tents, throwing up comm equipment, rucking stuff around. And then all of a sudden we're under attack, you know, is, is the team ready for that? And, the, you know, and that's through your experiences of the things that you're doing to make that assessment and go, yeah, I feel like we're, we're good to go for this. Okay. So, I, gotta, I gotta ask because you mentioned qualitative versus quantitative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is something that we talk about all the time, specific to human performance. And I guess, you know, we can we can answer in that capacity or or whatever feels right for you. But I would imagine in your position, quantitative data is I don't want to say preferred. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how do Tempting, you tempting easier? Exactly. Yeah. And so how do you navigate that? 
Yeah, it, so I, I use a trust but verify. So I, I <laughs> like the quantitative data, like it tells me good things, it gives me good indicators, but I also want to get eyes on and see for myself. Like I'm I I'm a big believer in that of show me the vignette. Let me go out there and actually see this in action to either confirm the data, you know, ensure that the data is telling me what I think it's telling me. Because sometimes the numbers can can paint a picture that's not accurate. Or um, sometimes you look at the numbers and you go, man, that's tough to believe. Is that really the case? And then you go out and you get eyes on and you're like, yeah, it really is. That, that is what we're looking at here. And so taking it from the standpoint of, again, it's, it is a data point, but it needs to be reinforced with, with something else. And to me, that's where the qualitative comes in. As a leader, I also like it from the standpoint of, I want to be able to tell the story. I want to be able to, to communicate what it is the team is doing or what it is they need. And so that the data helps with that. And then the eyes on experience also helps with that. And so that the two really go hand in hand. So that's why it can't totally be one or the other. They both are mutually supportive. Like you said, it, it can be really easy to gravitate to one or the other. You can go to the quantitative data and go, I got the answer here. The numbers are telling me this much like you can go, like I saw this one scenario, you know, and that becomes your qualitative story, but that may not be completely accurate based off the, the quantitative data that you're getting. I, I love that it's it rings true with a lot of stuff we've had conversations about before on previous topics, talking about human performance data. This next one's going to be a little bit of a detour, but I have to ask it as like an army guy talking to an Air Force guy and particularly an A-10 guy. Um, you've talked about resource-constrained environments. There's been a lot of tension around the A-10, especially two years ago, but continuing now. The message has been that the Air Force wants to retire it. You probably have plenty of awareness that ground troops absolutely love it. It's legendary. The The money gets tied up in local politics. Now we've got Ukraine where like suddenly there's like a tank killer mission kind of thing on the horizon. How is all that playing out from your perspective as an A-10 pilot who's probably got a little bit emotionally invested in the future of the platform? Just a little bit. You know what I would say about the, the A-10 is... It's not just the the platform or the capability, and I mean, and the plane is amazing. It's it's a it's a joy to fly. Um, it's uh, it, it's great from an airmanship and aviation standpoint. Uh, but what's really critical to it is is the culture of uh, the close air support mentality of hey, if there's somebody in harm's way on the ground, we will be there uh, to be able to to support that individual by providing fires, by providing mutual support whatever it is, I'll take the risk that that, that member, that troop on the ground is going through and I'll, I'll throw it onto my shoulders and, and help them out. And you don't only just see that with the A-10, you see it in the air to air community. You know, that, that is what they do is they're like, Hey, I'm here to support the strike package going in and making sure nobody messes with you when you go do your job. The, the whole mindset of, Hey, it's not about you. You see that in, in several different places. And so, you know, with the, with the future of the A-10, well, you know, I completely love it and, and thankful for the things that I've got to do in it. The one thing that I know is that the culture is is still there with those those people that were in the platform have moved on to the F-35 and, and other different missions. And, and they take that and go, okay, how can I take this weapon system now? And if that situation ever arises, provide the same thing, you know, provide something that will take care of the troops and the forces on the ground. And so, um, yeah, it, it is a, it's a challenging environment when you, when you look at the outlook right now, whether that's resources, whether it's the strategic environment, Pacific and the distances and the threats that are associated with it. 
And so it, it means that there's there's tough decisions out there. But at the same time, I think what gives me security and peace of mind is that, you know, I know the team that are that's out there totally embraces the responsibilities that they have, the mission that they have. That culture is there and they're they're phenomenal people and warriors. And and because of that, I have I have total faith uh, that they'll always be there to take care of the team. So I got to ask a fun one here. And for folks that don't know what an A-10 is, by the way, I recommend a Google. It's a machine gun with wings, I think is a decent description. Was there a time in your training pipeline where they just got on comms and were like, you can go full auto now on the gun for fun? And how was that? Yeah. So, I mean, shooting the gun is an amazing experience. (laughs) It's just incredible. When we shoot a tactical burst, that's two seconds. It's 114 rounds that that go out of the front end of the the millimeter Gatling in that time. Now, uh, shooting it just nonstop is not something that's recommended just uh, for air purposes and and those kinds of things. I have gone out on missions and sorties where the intent has been, do not come back with a bullet in the gun, like shoot out the gun, not in one single pass, uh, (laughs) but uh, you know, but when you think about it, it carries 1,174 rounds. Uh, You're shooting about 114 rounds every two seconds. I I mean, about 11, 12 passes and you're, you're out of bullets. And, but it's, it's an amazing 11 and 12 passes to to be able to do that. That's He's awesome. talking about spiritual experiences right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the spiritual side of human performance. Translate that to an A10 gun for me. <laughs> uh, so another sl- slight pivot as we move somewhat towards a close, but obviously our audience, human performance folks, and I think there's a there's a, a certain subset that this is brand new to them, the idea of human performance in the military. So from where you sit, again, like, what what would you look for? What do you think are some kind of ideal characteristics for somebody stepping into the role of, of an embedded performance professional? Yeah, it's really the embodiment of the unit that, that you're going into. The more that that assimilation occurs, uh, where you spend time with them during the mission, you, you see, and again, like if I were to use an Air Force example, a fighter squadron is going to be different than a mobility squadron. A maintenance unit is going to be different than a security forces unit, you know, which is going to be different than a service support squadron. They all have different challenges. They all have different stressors that are there. So that the more that you can immerse yourself in the mission of that organization, embody the culture. And the, the ones that I always felt had it right is when they were wearing the unit patches, they were, they were part of the, the team. Like you could almost not tell the difference um, between the actual members of the unit and, and the performance personnel that were in there. They were, I mean, they were just hand in glove as far as the, the close knit community of it. Uh, and so I, I think that is a, a key and, and tool for success. And then it's really uh, the communication of, Hey, I, I am here to help you. You know, it, you, you've got a, a safe environment where you can tell me what's going on you know, what's, what's hurting, where's the weak area where you need some help. And it's, it's my job to give you the game plan to, to get better and uh, to provide some of that tough love too, of pushing like, Hey, you, you're capable of a little more than this. You don't give it the effort, give it the time you cancel that one or twice. And I, um, I think that also leads to other great things of, you know, if that individual is going through something, if, you know, it's one more sensor out there to help take care of the team. And so it, it really comes down to the touch points and the immersion of the team. If you're seen as some, 
kind of tacked on organization or some sort of like sidebar unit, to me, it doesn't work. It's got to be the total integration and total part of the team to, to, to really maximize uh, it. And that, that to me has been the most winning model out there. That's what we've seen across all the forces. It seems like that's the direction everybody's going. It used to be that it was like a clinic you go to. Right. And, and now it's become something that's like part of the culture of the organization. Yeah. So when I was the Nellis Wing commander, when the resources, we started to work the resources to set up, it was essentially located, but we tried to get into the units as quickly as possible. And when we hit that turning point, that's when we saw the most existential gains was, was once that transition occurred. Absolutely. We're going to, we're going to start going into some like quicker closing questions here as we wrap Speed up. Speed round. I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll share like a tiny personal anecdote. And then I'll ask for your version of it. Basically I hit a point in my career. And for me, it came in the middle of my captain time where I was, I was wondering about the impact I was having. And I kind of discovered this human performance thing. I got a really cool job where I got to teach this kind of stuff. And I knew that was the direction I wanted to go. And as an intelligence officer, I knew intelligence branch was not that interested in me going to be a gym teacher, basically. So that was where I made my decision about what my future was going to look like and what I was going to get involved in and how I was going to help the force. How did you decide, like what, what have been the decision points in your career that led you to staying in to being a general officer? Yeah. So I would say the decision points, it started off with just trying to be an expert in the job that I was doing. And, um, that was very satisfying as I was doing that early on in the career uh, and then I would say it was around the 10 to 12 year point where the leadership aspect of it becomes more and more important. And as I started to, to study the leadership dynamics and those kinds of things, there was really a passion of if I can develop my own leadership skill, I can help others. Then it became if I can help other leaders develop that, that helps others help others. And then that kind of grew into the strategic aspect of it. If I can help develop a strategy or help take part in a strategy, now I'm helping even even greater numbers or ensuring greater numbers are are able to do what it is that they need to do. And so it's always been a continuous evolution, but I would say the bedrock of that was, was trying to help others out, being there for others, whether it was via leadership strategy uh, in a commander role in those kinds of things. And so I would say that's really where I, I drew the purpose from is if there's a pain chain out there, how can I, how can I solve that pain chain? If there is something that, that helps the team out, how can I help provide that? If, if the mission is important, how do I ensure that we're successful at that? And, and that's really, I would say what, what gave me my drive to, to, to continue. And it, it's not a, it's not an easy process. I think we all, you know, I tell folks, that I have the chance to, to serve with. And, and, and when I'm a commander is like, Hey, if you are not questioning yourself of, should I transition on uh, to the either civilian sector, if you're active duty transition to the guard or reserve, if you're at retirement, think about retirement, that is a healthy thing to assess, you know, whether like I'm going to continue on because this, this is not easy. Like the work that we do is not the easiest thing that we do and transitioning is not easy. That is a very scary step to take because it's an unknown world. It's a different construct. What is it that you want to do? And the thing that I, I try and tell people is one, you're not, you're not healthy unless you're thinking about both, both aspects of that. And there's some fear associated with both aspects of that, that, that you've got to, got to embrace. And that's also why as a, as a leader, 
I never look at it as a derogatory decision. You know, in the Air Force, sometimes you hear cliches of, oh, he's he's punching, he's pulling chocks, he's getting out. I'm like, those are no-go terms to use with me. It is transition, separate, or retire, you know, like when it comes to the service that somebody's doing. And then as they're doing it, again, my mantra is let's give them back better than we got them. How can I make you as successful as possible at Act 2, whatever that is? And so it's not the easiest thing to figure out. I mean, when it comes time for me to make that transition, like I'm, I'm going to be freaking out, you know, and um, it's, it's a challenge. But what I can tell you is finding that purpose or finding something is my hope, whatever organization that is in the military or when it's time to transition on to, to something else. So as a, as a follow on to that one, uh, and this is me guessing, but I would imagine jump, the jump from 06 to 07 is a big one in terms of your world kind of opening up as you, as you stepped into that role, who, who, or, or what were some of the key leaders or, or key inspirations that you looked at to kind of form your philosophy as you put on the star? Yeah, there's, there's a number of them. And- and I would say that the common theme between all of them is authentic leadership. And so when they reached those general officer ranks, even though they had tremendous responsibility and stand in control, they were still very authentic in who they were. It wasn't like all of a sudden you felt like you were getting a different person. Yeah, they had uh, a lot of influence. They had quite a bit, you know, large staff, large organization that they were in charge of, uh, but they still had their, their core beliefs. They still communicated authentically. Uh, and to me, those were, those were the models that I looked up to. You know, one of them just retired recently, uh, general, uh, Harigian. He was the safety commander. He was, he was the assistant commander when I was there. And he was the, really the pure embodiment of just a, an authentic leader, knew what he believed in, would challenge thinking, challenged his own thinking and, and, and spoke, um, you know, in a way where you knew the person you were talking to, what you saw is what you got. And so that, that's what I've always uh, really tried to emulate as well, as far as how I, how I conduct myself. I don't know how much you're flying anymore at this point in your career. So I got to ask what was, (laughs) what, what point in your career, what rank or what position was the most fun? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a challenging one. There's different highlights. It's kind of at each level, you know, and that captain majors, you're at the top of your game. You're, um, you know, really an expert in the weapon system that you're at. And, uh, you know, it's almost like you are thinking something and executing it. It's like the most pure flow state there is, uh, when you're in a squadron commander type role, you know, which is you're in charge of about a hundred people. It's like the right tribe size dynamic where you still have a very close knit group. But at the same time, you have the ability and the span of control to, to change things. As a wing commander, now you really have the ability to, to solve problems and move the ball forward. And so being a wing commander was a, was a tremendous role. So um, there isn't one that is just like, that, that was it. That was Nirvana. At, at each stage, there's been a different level of satisfaction that, that goes along with it for, for different reasons. But in each one, it, 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 it's always been a, a tremendous experience. And uh, I, again, I, for me, the key was uh, what was I able to do for others and, and the ability to provide that. So you're saying if you woke up, put on your uniform and you had all the rank insignia in front of you and you could choose one for the day, you wouldn't be able to do it. 
Yeah, it would be a toughie, you know, like if I could go back and be the young fighter pilot one more time <laughs> in a fighter squadron, that that's really appealing. Really, didn't really Maverick, appealing. didn't Maverick yeah. stay at the same rank for like 30 years or something like yeah, that? Yeah, somebody's <laughs> got to figure out the math on that one. I still like <laughs> the 10 G seemed a little bit implausible and, uh, with the amount of service that he had as a, as an 06. That one, that one's kind of tough to square the corner on as well. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that that is a tough one. Wing Commander, like I said, that was that was just great because uh, the size of the organization, the ability to make changes, it's, it's tough. That's a that's a tough one, and, and it it's not totally dependent on rank either. It was a lot of it was just the role that you're in, and mm-hmm. so yeah, but it, it's it's all been a blast. <laughs> all right, last question. This is a big one. If you had to choose your favorite plane that is not an A10, what would it be? Throughout, so like through all eras, like okay, let's okay, we'll go both ways. Historical aircraft, any plane of all time. Question one, question one B, planes you actually know how to fly or have flown. Okay, Um, yeah. So if I were okay, if I were to go current times, I'll I'll give you a few different answers to this. Uh, My old man flew F-15s. That's always been another front runner as far as just a a great plane. It's an air dominance machine. It did an amazing job. And, you know, it's, it's in its retirement days uh, right now as well. The the F-22 Raptor is just an incredible machine. Like that thing is just like unbelievable as far as maneuverability systems on it. It it is a, it is a work of art. Uh, So that, that is an incredible platform. Uh, just amazing. Uh, you know, going back, there's the P-51, which uh, would have been it. amazing. Yeah, amazing, just sleek, a sleek uh, aircraft. As an A-10 guy, my, I do hearken a little bit to the, the P-47, the A-1 Sky Raider. Big fan of the F-105. That's a Fairchild Republic aircraft as well. So that that would have been amazing, just a huge burner can, just going faster than, than, than anything. <laughs> you know, what, what's interesting is, whatever platform you're in, whatever aircraft you're in, like, that's the one, like, they're all, they're all amazing. And the mission's so incredible. Like, uh, whatever you get a chance to fly, it is, it is phenomenal. So I, I I can't think of anybody where they're in an aircraft flying. And so it's like, do you like that? And they go, no, it's not fun. It stinks. Like they're, it's a little clunky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, sir, thank you. This has been awesome. I know you have a ton of things going on. So thank you for carving out the time. Yeah, appreciate no, it. I really appreciate it. Uh, really appreciate the show. You know, again, um, I think it's awesome because it, it's trying to help people maximize what it is they do. And, and again, it, it gives you a, the construct and the science behind it. So it's awesome that you guys explore it. And that uh, was a, a very humble to be part of it. Well, we're sending stickers out to Hawaii. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Hey, guys, Drew here. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you found it useful or enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you giving us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can also give us a follow on the Mops and Mo's Instagram. And if you'd like to reach out, send us a message on Instagram or shoot us an email at mopsinmos at gmail.com. Thanks.